want to say it, it's such a joy to hear your voices standing here and hearing your collective voices raising praise to God this morning. It was such a blessing to hear that. So good. Thank you. Um, today we are continuing our sermon series called A New Thing. We started on Easter Sunday looking at the new thing God started with the resurrection of Jesus. We then looked at how the new thing God did in raising Jesus helped to expand and strengthen our faith. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw how God doing a new thing expands our understanding of Scripture. And last week, we talked about how God did a new thing which brought a deeper meaning to Abram's and to our purpose. Today, we're going to talk about how God is doing a new thing, causing us to deepen and expand our love for others. Let us pray. God, we pray your Holy Spirit would be here among us. Fill us, fill me, speak through me, speak through your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. As Jesus continued on from there, oh, sorry, I get lost in my, my scripture there. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Most scholars seem to agree that the Gospel of Matthew was probably written sometime between 70 and 100 A.D. And while it appears in our Bibles as the first Gospel, it was not the first written. Most scholars will agree that Mark is likely the first one to have been written. Then either Matthew or Luke and then John. Taken together, the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known in theological terms as the synoptic gospels because they share much of the same content. Each book, however, has its own focus. According to theologian N.T. Wright, the gospel of Matthew is the manual on the person of Jesus and the nature of discipleship. Wright also comments that Matthew's Jesus quote, embodies God's presence, ushers in the kingdom of heaven, and by his death brings the forgiveness of sins. It is above all a teaching book about how to be a follower of Jesus. 
In the context of Matthew, we find a community that is at odds with following Jesus and living up to the culture and expectations of the Jewish world in which they lived. The audience of Matthew was made up mostly of Jewish Christians who were trying to understand how to live in a Jewish world where Gentiles were being accepted into the kingdom as equals. And it is in that conundrum that we find our text for today. Our passage opens with Jesus continuing on his way. Well, where was he continuing from? Well, he just arrived. He had taken a boat. We see earlier in the chapter where he is taking a boat to his hometown of Capernaum, which was a fishing village, uh, and also farming and trading occurred there. It was located on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. When he arrived, people brought him a man who was paralyzed. Jesus at first only tells the man that his sins are forgiven. Instead of what we would think he would do in healing the man's physical infirmities. Well, sure enough, there were some scribes there that started complaining about uh, Jesus and that Jesus was insulting God. So Jesus went ahead and healed the man of his physical infirmities. And so that caused everyone to start praising God. And this is when we come to verse 9. Jesus sees a man named Matthew sitting in a booth collecting taxes from the people. Strangely, without any conversation whatsoever, Jesus simply says to Matthew, follow me. Two simple words. No, hi, I'm Jesus, how are you? Nice to meet you. Jesus didn't walk up and hand him a tract and try to explain the way of salvation to him. No, he just said, follow me. And that's exactly what Matthew did without any question or argument. In this particular gospel, Matthew is the fifth disciple to be called after Peter, Andrew, James, and John, but he is different from the other four. Those four were fishermen. They were accepted in the community. Matthew, however, was not because he was a tax collector. Tax collectors weren't liked very much by the people kind of like how some might feel about IRS agents today. Uh, they were usually residents who were in service to Rome to collect taxes that were imposed on the population. They were usually residents, so they were, they were Jewish people who were in service to Rome, and they were often viewed as traitors to the kingdom of Israel because they were helping the oppressor. And they were also traitors to Judaism because the money they collected was going to this pagan government of Rome. Not only that, but they were oftentimes guilty of taking more money than they were supposed to and pocketing the difference. So it could be a very lucrative business to be in. But these were not the kind of people that your devout Jewish religious people would want to be associated with or to consort with, much less invite them to sit down at a table to have a meal. Yet that's just exactly what Jesus did. After inviting Matthew, we find Jesus in a home. Now, the translation we read today says that it was Matthew's house, but other translations just simply say the house. 
And I tend to agree that it was probably not Matthew's house. It would make more sense for it to be somebody else's house. Some scholars believe it might have been Jesus' house or Peter's house. Don't really know. In either case, it would explain why the Pharisees were there in the house because otherwise, if it were Matthew's house, they wouldn't want to be there. Why? Because there were sinners present. Sinners is that collective term that gets often used in the Gospels to often refer to those who are outcasts and pariahs of society. They don't quite meet up to the expectations of the law. They were the people from the other side of the track. Those who were marginalized and forced to survive any way they could. Yet here they are, eating with Jesus. In verse 10, the phrase, as Jesus sat down to eat, is not like what we do when we sit down to eat at home. No, it was much more intimate. It was a reclining it's, the word actually, it could be translated to recline. So they were lying on pillows and around the table. So it was much more intimate. A very relaxed and informal setting. I can imagine that there, were a lot of, there was a lot of laughter. There were probably stories being shared. Regardless, the Pharisees were aghast at what Jesus was doing. He was sitting, he was reclining in a house with a bunch of miscreants. We often hear the term Pharisee in the scriptures, so who are they actually? We see them mentioned quite a bit. They are often the antagonists in the stories of Jesus. They are the ones that always question Jesus for his actions and for consorting with sinners. They actually started as a political faction during the time of the Maccabees. And they actually, after the destruction of the temple, they attempted to maintain Jewish identity and the Jewish faith by uh, setting up worship in homes, Jewish worship in homes. So while they might have had the right notion, you know, somewhere they kind of got off. But throughout the Gospels, the term the Pharisees is more of a generic term for those who focus on the law as a to-do list or probably more correctly a to-don't list instead of a new way of thinking about the world and their relationship with their neighbors. You know, I find it rather interesting that the Pharisees didn't go directly to Jesus and say, why are you eating with sinners? No, instead... They tried to corner the disciples and they took an opportunity to actually take a jab at Jesus because they were when they used the term teacher in their question, that, that was actually uh, being condescending. They used that term often as a, a remark of disdain. I can imagine they probably would have used air quotes of your teacher. Yet, the only one they were making fun of, the one that they were making fun of is the only one there who was truly a teacher. He was teaching them what God envisioned for his kingdom. And in his threefold response, 
that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, we see the lesson that God showed that God was up to something new. First, we see Jesus using a quote that was derived from the Hellenistic thought of the period. Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. That's pretty common sense, right? If you're not sick, you really don't have a need to go to a doctor. But if you're sick, obviously you need one. You see, physicians have to be hands-on to be effective. You know, if I go to a doctor and I'm getting checked out, I don't want him just to stand over here on the corner and ask me how I'm feeling and say, yeah, you look like you might be sick. Okay, you're good. Go on. No. I want him to examine me, make sure I'm okay. Much like successful gardeners who have to get their hands in the dirt, doctors too must get their hands dirty. For Jesus to bring healing to the sick mean that he had to be hands-on with those who were sick. But who were the well and who were the sick in this story? Our first inclination might be that to say that the Pharisees, with all their knowledge of God and the law and their, their following, that, that they were the ones who were well. And it was the sinners who are the sick. The sinners long for inclusion and recognition and justice and they needed healing for the wounds caused by the religious establishment that was ignoring and shunning them. On the other hand, we could see the Pharisees as being sick from overdosing on religiosity and law. In that case, the sinners might be more healthy in the grand scheme of things. Both cases show God was doing a new thing by removing the barrier between the holy and the sinner. No longer did the sinner have to be an outcast. They too could be included in God's kingdom and experience God's love. With Jesus, they were seen, they were valued, they were loved. Because Jesus saw them through God's eyes, not through some lens of law or religious stigma. Next, Jesus instructs the Pharisees to go learn the meaning of, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is actually quoting a verse from Hosea 6.6, and that entire verse reads, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God instead of entirely burned offerings. Now, another word for faithful love could be mercy. And the two go hand in hand. God wanted the Israelites to show mercy, to show faithful love to those in need, yet they refused because they were so focused on following the law. The Pharisees showed their lack of mercy by condemning Jesus by simply sharing a meal with sinners. They showed the lack of mercy by turning their nose up at those that Jesus welcomed. They focused on sacrifice and adherence to the letter of the law without any mercy. God did a new thing through Jesus by showing mercy to the sinners and the tax collectors 
by welcoming them into the kingdom of God just as they were. Jesus didn't ask them to first change their ways before sitting down with them. He loved them as they were. Lastly, Jesus rephrased the first statement he made by saying he had come to call not the righteous, but sinners. In this instance, the righteous were those who followed Torah and abided by the law, and they were on the inside religiously. They had the knowledge, but no mercy. In the Sermon on the Mount earlier in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus pointed out that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So who then can get into the kingdom? Kind of a rhetorical question. No one can through their own righteousness. It is only through Christ's righteousness that we can see the kingdom. And as we hear each Sunday, Christ invites all who earnestly repent of their sins and seek to live in harmony with one another to his table and therefore to the kingdom. God was doing a new thing because somewhere along the way, the people had gotten off track. The religious leaders had lost their way. The law had become a burden and not a blessing. It became more of a checklist of things one should not do. Let's see, I did not steal today. Okay, check. I did not commit adultery. Okay, check. I did not lie. Uh Uh-oh, I better go take sacrifice to the temple and correct that. It is because of the burden brought about by the law that Jesus offers the invitation in Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put my yoke, uh, put on my yoke and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. God, through Jesus, offers a better way, one that requires more than just a checklist of things you could recite. Who remembers their favorite teacher in school? Yeah? Everybody had probably had a favorite teacher. That one teacher that just, everything clicked with them. I had one of those in high school. His name was Mr. Klein. He was my math teacher in my junior and senior year of high school. He could make trigonometry and pre-calculus just make sense. He was a rare teacher. Mr. Klein was not a, a huge fan of teacher certification tests as a sole means of qualifying someone to teach. Because in his opinion, you can pass a test all day long, but until you can successfully explain something to someone so that they can understand it and that they can pass a test, probably not really teaching. For him, teaching was more than just head knowledge. In the same way, the law had become 
more about head knowledge than what you actually did, how you actually treated and loved one another. See, the Pharisees knew about God. They knew the law inside and out. But they were still missing the point. Theologian Luke Timothy Johnson explains it this way. The polemic against teachers is not an attack on Torah itself. The scribes and Pharisees, in fact, are condemned not for preaching, but for not practicing what they preach or practicing for people's approval without a corresponding inner disposition. Their causatory distorts Torah by preferring lighter matters to the weightier ones of justice, mercy, and faith. Their midrash does not liberate but lays heavy burdens that people keep from the front, that keep people from the kingdom. The allusion to the yoke of the kingdom cannot be missed here. Their real religious attitude is shown by their treatment of those who do not follow God's word. You see, God isn't looking for us to know about God. That's easy enough to do. And unfortunately, that's the Christianity we so often see today. Say these words in a prayer, memorize some verses, regurgitate some theological ideas, and voila, you're a Christian. But that isn't what God wants. That isn't the point because head knowledge is worthless without heart knowledge. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. John Wesley firmly believed that there must be both an inward and an outward change in a person who calls themselves Christian. God wants us to know God in a much deeper way where we are reclining at table and laughing and fellowshipping with God and with others. Where we love God as well as our neighbors. Where we open our hearts and our hands and our doors to show mercy to those who are suffering, to those who are marginalized and outcast and less fortunate, to those who are ridiculed for who they are or who they love, to those who are simply rejected because of the color of their skin or where they're from, to those who are longing for a real and right relationship with God, even though they don't have it altogether. God desires a faithful love, mercy that is pointed outward to others. That is the point. The beauty of it is, though, we don't have to have it all figured out first. Jesus did that already. He just took care of that. We simply have to accept his invitation to come, follow me. The question is, will we follow him where sinners and tax collectors may show up? Are we willing to be questioned or even ridiculed for the company we keep in the name of Jesus? Or will we act as physicians to bring Christ healing to those who need it most? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.